Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Today we're going to talk about the Biden administration's newly released American Jobs Plan and what's in it. And I interviewed Joe Biden's top economic advisor, the director of the National Economic Council, Brian Deese, where we talk about this new package, how to stop Republicans from inevitably trying to take credit for it, calls from progressives who say it needs to be bigger, and whether we might actually see high-speed rail become a reality. I'm Brian Tyler Cohen, and you're listening to No Lie. So for a guy they dubbed Sleepy Joe, I'm not sure I've seen a president move so fast. After passing the American Rescue Plan, what, 46 days into his presidency, Biden's now unveiled the American Jobs Plan. So the American Jobs Plan is a lot. Brian Deese gives a really good summary in the interview coming up, but Here's my attempt at conveying just some of what's included in the package. It'll fix roads, bridges, airports, mass transit, deliver clean drinking water, renew the electric grid, plug oil and gas wells and clean up abandoned mines, create a national network of electric vehicle chargers, get high-speed broadband to 100% of Americans, build or retrofit 2 million homes and buildings, modernize our schools, upgrade veterans' hospitals and federal buildings, create jobs and raise wages and benefits for home care workers, revitalize manufacturing, invest in R&D, strengthen unions, and prepare Americans for jobs of the future. Not a bad place to start as we kick off these negotiations. But Republicans have already begun towing the party line and coming out against infrastructure, despite the fact that during the last administration, after Trump himself coined what would be the never-ending infrastructure week, they actually supported it. And the reason they supported it is because it's popular. And because Trump was good at pretending to be a populist, he knew the appeal that an infrastructure package would have, even if he had no intention of actually following through with it, because let's face it, it doesn't unilaterally help rich people. But there's a tweet by Ezra Klein that I found so interesting. And again, I don't mean to harp on Trump here. If you listen to this podcast, you'll know that I make a pretty concerted effort not to bring him up unless I have to. You know, he lost, he's out of office, I'm not here to continue giving him a platform that he doesn't deserve. But this tweet by Ezra Klein brings up a good point. It says, quote, it's become a punchline, but it really is remarkable that Trump didn't do an infrastructure plan in his four years in office. Particularly at the beginning, he could have peeled off scared Democrats. The whole country could have roads and bridges with his face on them. People who have absolutely no interest in the work of governance don't govern well, even by their own measures. Trump said he wanted a massive rebuilding of American infrastructure. He likes building things. I think he did want it. He just didn't want to do the work. And I thought that was so spot on because it shows the dichotomy between the policies that Republicans harp on versus what they'll actually spend their political capital on. And so they, you know, wax poetic for years about how they would finally restore our crumbling infrastructure. But in actuality, an infrastructure package requires a government that at a bare minimum is functional, but at best is hyper effective. And if the whole MO of the Republican Party is to show that government doesn't work so that they can turn around and use that as justification to shrink it even more then that's clearly not a political party that's going to be well-positioned to revamp the nation's infrastructure. <laughs> that's, that's not even a political party that could manage to tell people to take the bare minimum step during a global pandemic to wear a mask. They couldn't do that. So of course their promises of getting infrastructure done was just empty rhetoric. The fact is, 
that Republicans are there to do one thing without fail. Lower the highest marginal tax rate for businesses and individuals. That's all. And that eliminates tax revenue that would otherwise fund projects and services that we need to keep this country functioning. We would use that tax revenue for health care. Uh, we would use it for emergencies like this pandemic. And right now we need it for infrastructure. That is why we have a government. It's not to, to make millionaires into multimillionaires. It's to keep the country running for everyone else. Like, come on. If not to at least make sure that our roads and bridges are functional, then what in the world else would our government exist for? But Republicans decided that letting corporations skate by without paying a dime in taxes was preferable to restoring our infrastructure. And if you need proof of that, by the way, just look at where we are right now. After four years of Republican control, the Amazons of the world still don't pay taxes and our infrastructure is still crumbling. That didn't occur in a vacuum. That was a choice. The GOP had to decide that Amazon wouldn't pay and they had to decide that our roads and bridges would continue to crumble. It was a conscious decision that reflects their priorities. So Republicans will pull out whatever they can to complain about this bill. You know, they'll, they'll suddenly rediscover the deficit or pretend that it's just the Green New Deal repackaged or that only 5% of the bill goes to infrastructure and the rest goes to, I don't know, illegal immigrants. But amid all of that, here's what you should remember. This package is our only shot while we have unified control of government to deliver a once-in-a-generation upgrade to this country. And no, not, not just the libs, everyone. Broadband for rural America and inner cities, roads across the countries, veterans' hospitals. It's got something for everyone from across the political spectrum. And the price to get it done is having corporations pay their fair share by raising the corporate tax rate from 21% to 28%, which is still below the 35% rate when Obama was president, along with creating a global minimum tax, ending subsidies to fossil fuels, cracking down on tax havens, all of which, by the way, is popular. In fact, taking these measures which amounts to, you know, making the rich pay their fair share, are as popular as the infrastructure reforms that they'll be funding. So look, all of that is to say, you know how it's going to get paid for, and you know what's in it. So when you encounter opposition to this bill from the right, think about who they're trying to protect at the same time that they're telling you that you don't deserve to drive on new roads, and that rural Americans don't deserve broadband, and that we don't deserve a power grid that won't fail like the one in Texas. Because you can serve the people... Or you can serve the ultra-wealthy, but you can't serve both. This package puts that on full display. Next up is my interview with Brian Deese. Today we've got the White House National Economic Council Director, Brian Deese. Thanks for coming on. Oh, thank you for having me. So the administration has already passed the American Rescue Plan, which was a major victory, massively popular, enjoyed the support of three-quarters of all Americans. Now we're on to infrastructure is it possible we're finally going to see Infrastructure Week? <laughs> Look, our goal is to retire Infrastructure Week and actually have a uh, bill enacted into law and change the uh, shape of American infrastructure. So our hope is that we, uh, we, we, the, inf- the days of Infrastructure Week are numbered. Yeah, well, good, because I think we're, uh, we're, we're, we're actually 200 weeks into Infrastructure Week right now. This is the longest week of my life since the week that Donald Trump got elected. So uh, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. So this is the American Jobs Plan. What are the major elements that the American people should know about? Sure. So the first thing to know about the American Jobs Plan is it is the largest investment, capital investment in American jobs since the Second World War. Um, it's, yeah, it's big and bold, but it's also practical. You can think about it in four basic parts. The first is our transportation infrastructure, how we move around. So that's roads, bridges, ports, airports, but also mass transit and rail. The second is 
the infrastructure of how we live. Um, and this is increasingly important in the 21st century. We got to broaden our definition of infrastructure. This is about water. We want to completely eliminate all lead service lines and pipes. There's 10 million Americans today who get their water through lead pipes, even though we know that the safe level of uh, lead in water is zero. Right. Uh, it's also about uh, high-speed internet. High-speed internet is the electricity of the 21st century. 35% of households in rural areas don't have any uh, access to the internet. We're going to change that. We're going to get uh, uh, internet to everybody. And it is about electricity too. We're still going to need a lot of electricity in the 20, uh, 21st century, rebuilding our power infrastructure, making it more resilient uh, so that things like what we saw in Texas uh, don't keep happening and building more housing too. So more people actually can get into affordable housing. That's piece two. Piece three is the infrastructure of our care economy. For so many families, you can't go to work. You can't be an active participant in today's economy if you're also having to take care of an elderly parent, uh, an adult child with disabilities. Uh, the care, the infrastructure of our care economy, and particularly the people who do that work, caring for um, elderly people, caring for our parents, it's some of the hardest work that people do, principally women, women of color. We want to invest in those jobs, better paying jobs, more union opportunities. And then lastly is the uh, is how we create our innovation economy, research and development and manufacturing, trying to address some of the supply chain vulnerabilities we've seen that have come uh, to bear in COVID, whether it's for computer chips that uh, go into anything from cars to computers, and, do, and make the biggest investment in R&D since the 1960s, since the space race. So those are the four elements. It's a big capital investment in America, but all stuff that uh, is long overdue. Yeah, totally agree. And it's not just me who says that. We've seen polling that two-thirds of Americans support an ambitious infrastructure package. Now, McConnell, and I'm glad you're sitting down for this, McConnell shockingly does not support it. Um, we already know that there's going to be a parade of Republicans whose come-to-Jesus moment happens on January 20th, and suddenly they're fiscally conservative again. So this is a $2.5 trillion plan. So to get out in front of this, and I don't mean to adopt the Republican framing here, but you know this is going to be their headline, so I'd rather it be accurate— how do we pay for it? Sure. Well, so one thing I would say is the, the support for that, that set of investments, those infrastructure investments I just described, is really across the board. Governors, mayors, business, labor, Republicans, Democrats have for some significant time been pounding the table and saying now's the time to go big on exactly the kind of infrastructure we're talking about. So we really have broad agreement on uh, the necessity to make these, this type of investment. So we get to the question then of how we pay for it. The president uh, has a particular view. He thinks that we should make this capital investment in America over about eight years, and we should pay for it over 15 years by making our corporate tax system fairer uh, and making it, more, uh, uh, making it more conducive to actually investing in the United States. One of the big problems we have with corporate taxes is that companies have an incentive to shift profits and also shift production outside of the United States to tax havens uh, and other jurisdictions. We passed a law in 2017 that just made the matters made matters worse. The uh, typical tax rate that a multinational corporation pays has been cut in half since that tax law. So we'd reform the corporate tax system, generate revenue over 15 years to pay for this. We think that's a fair way uh, to do it. And the president was really clear. That's his idea. He believes we have to make this infrastructure investment. Let's see what other people have. But let's not get caught in the game of saying we can't do big things because we can't pay for them. We've just shown a very common sense way to do it. Right. And I think something else to consider, too, is the cost of not 
moving forward with this. I think just this year alone, we spent something in the ballpark of $95 billion in damages from, from crumbling infrastructure because of, you know, uh, extreme weather events and whatnot. So, you know, the cost for not updating our infrastructure is another element to this that's not just like, that goes beyond just the cost on paper. We've seen the number of billion dollar weather events, meaning a weather event that cost more than a billion dollars, more than double. 22 just this year alone. And as you say, we spent over $100 billion just in public money uh, uh, to deal with the increased frequency and severity of extreme weather events. That doesn't count the impact on people who lost their lives, lost their homes, lost their livelihoods because of power failures, because of uh, flooding. Uh, We're seeing it all over the country, whether it's fires in the West, flooding in the Midwest, hurricanes in the East. And this is the new normal. This is the normal of the climate crisis. And another big reason to invest in this infrastructure is, by the way, we're proposing uh, uh, in both the power sector and the transportation sector, the building blocks of what it's going to mean to transform our economy to the zero carbon uh, economy of the future that the market is already pushing. But we need to build the infrastructure, just like we built the interstate highway system. We need to build a national network of electric vehicle charging stations so that our, uh, our industry can actually build those electric vehicles here in the United States. Those can be built by American workers. We can capture the export markets when other countries are uh, moving to electric vehicles. That's the kind of opportunity that we could capture if we make these infrastructure investments now. And by the way, a lot of that was was kind of surrendered to China in the last administration by virtue of entrenching our reliance on fossil fuels and putting aside, you know, uh, uh, renewables like we saw for the last four years with an administration that didn't believe that they were necessary, that surrendered all of those good American jobs to the, the country that they fear monger about the most, which is China. And and I think Chinese uh, solar companies, for example, uh, you know, completely outnumber those in the U.S. Look, if you look at what China's done over the last five years, they are strategically investing in their own infrastructure, high-speed rail, batteries, uh, advanced research, their uh, investment is going up like this. And the United States is one of the only advanced economies where research as a share of our economy has fallen over the last generation. So we are, we're at a moment where, uh, as the president said yesterday, he believes that this is actually going to be a moment where, the, where we face a profound question. Is it democracies or is it autocracies and authoritarian regimes that can deliver for their people? Now, he firmly believes, we believe that democratic government is the answer and we can deliver for the American people, but we have to show them that that's the case. The rescue plan was a big step forward in that respect, but we have a generational opportunity to invest in infrastructure and really show people that these are things that will affect them in their lives. Clean water, access to high-speed internet. We're not talking about you know um, complicated issues. If you don't have high-speed internet in your home, you're sending your kid to a McDonald's parking lot to get on remote school right now. Those are the things we can fix. That's a big national project we could all, all get behind. Outside Washington, that's something that has really broad support. So that's kind of what we're talking about here. Yeah. So you had touched on this before. Uh, a, n- a number of companies have paid $0 in federal income taxes. Would this package rectify that? Yeah. So the re- one of the th- big things that's driving that is this race to the bottom internationally where you have low tax jurisdictions around the world. And when you, when you have a tax system that has a bunch of holes and a bunch of leakiness to it, companies can generate profit uh, in one place like the United States and shift that profit overseas. So this plan is really aimed at trying to uh, lock that down and make sure that when companies are given incentives, they're given incentives to invest here in the United States. So the first thing we would do is we would set the corporate rate at 28%. 
just to be clear, that rate would be lower, a lower corporate tax rate than any year since World War II, other than the four years since the Trump tax cut. So we're not talking about, you know, we're not talking about doing something unprecedented here, but it would also set a 21% uh, global minimum tax rate so that companies no longer have that incentive to shift profits overseas. Now, the, the last thing people say is, well, if we do that, then we'll give companies the incentive to just leave the United States uh, altogether, to change their headquarter, uh, headquarters. This is called the corporate inversion uh, in tax speak. But the other thing we're going to do is we're going to commit to working with our uh, counterparts around the world this year to actually get other countries to adopt minimum tax rates as well. And if they don't, we would penalize the companies who go overseas into those foreign jurisdictions and then try to take tax, uh, tax deductions. So we're okay. going to tighten up those uh, elements. And the good news is if you do that, you also generate revenue that could pay for these types of investments. So we've heard from some progressives like AOC and others that while this package would be unprecedented, that you know if this is our once in a generation shot to upgrade our infrastructure, that it doesn't go far enough. So what's the plan to reconcile that moving forward? Well, if you look at the components of the plan, um, it, is, uh, it is bold and it is historic. We recognize that um, we're going to hear some people are going to say it's not enough. Some people are going to say it's way too much. Um, what we're really looking at is what do we really need? What are the most important capital investments? And then what will they cost? And we don't want to spend any more than it's going to cost uh, to do these things. So um, we've looked across the power sector, the transportation sector, water, broadband, schools, housing our care infrastructure. This is our sense of what we think uh, we need uh, to really change the game here. But we're also really open. I mean, what, what we want to be clear, this is different from the rescue plan in the sense that we want to have, we want this to the, begin, the beginning of a conversation with Congress. We want to sit down. We want to learn and listen from people who have uh, looked at these issues closely. And we want to craft a piece of legislation together that will really meet the moment. The one thing the president is uncompromising on is we don't have a lot of time. And so we've talked about trying to get something done by this summer. And part of that is motivated by the fact that, uh, as you mentioned, as we come out of this uh, crisis and start to move toward recovery, our competitors have a significant leg up on us. For the last uh, several years, we have ignored these problems. And so if we don't act now, we're, we, we may miss our moment. But, you know, we're, we're open to ideas. That's the process. It's going to be a sausage making process. It'll feel, <laughs> it'll get, it'll get hard, and uh, and and lots of people will have ideas. We'll get batted all around, but we're uh, you know eyes on the prize. At the end of the day, we really want to deliver something important for the American people. That answers my next question too, which was uh, which was <laughs> the other side of the aisle. What what we do uh, about the Joe Mansions of the party? So uh, so yeah, I mean you know like you said, it's going to be a it's going to be a process, and everyone's going to have input. So I would say to that point. You really, it is important that, we, that I would note the breadth of the support to do something really big on infrastructure. You know, I, it, you look at, at the, um, the, the left and the center of the Democratic Party, you look at the, at least the, the, the center of the Republican Party, you look at the business community, you look at labor, there, there really is a lot of focus on, on how to do something big on, on infrastructure. But it goes back to your point about infrastructure week, right? You've seen that kind of support for some time. Yeah. So uh, we have to stop just talking about it and lionizing how great it would be to upgrade America's infrastructure. Right. Well, let's do it. Yeah. Perfectly put. Um, at the end of the day, when when this does pass, I'm sure we'll hear Republicans congratulating themselves for this bill, just like they're taking credit for the American Rescue Plan. 
Just a few days ago, we had Congressman Madison Cawthorn tweet about uh, the ARP's benefits uh, in his own district, despite the fact that he literally voted against the bill. So do you have any advice for Republicans like Cawthorn who will inevitably do the same when this bill is passed? You know, look, we want as many Americans as possible to understand just how the American Rescue Plan is delivering benefits for them. So, uh, uh, so, uh, so um, you know, look, I, I, joking aside, the American Rescue Plan, I think, has resonated with the American people because it is actually focused on them. It's not focused on what's going on in Washington. It's not focused on scoring points. It is really focused on delivering relief, whether that's money in their pocket through a, a, a you know, a, a direct check, whether it's reducing child poverty. These are direct benefits in people's lives. And I think that, you know, I hope that everybody can step back and say, that's the kind of thing that governing is trying to do, is to deliver for people in ways that they can feel it in their lives. And uh, we welcome uh, anyone who wants to come along on that journey. We're happy, uh, happy, for them, ha- happy for them to come along. Yeah, maybe, maybe next time they'll even vote for it. Who knows? <laughs> well, be, you know, it, would be great to, it would be great to have consistency between what you support and what you vote for. Well, yeah. It's a lot to ask for in 2021 with certain people, but um, moving moving forward, uh, will the $15 minimum wage be included in this package? And if so, uh, and this package gets passed through reconciliation, we're going to run into the same issue that we did before when the parliamentarian says that it doesn't qualify for reconciliation. So what's the plan to overcome that? Yeah. So on the $15 minimum wage, um, here's, where, here's where we are. The president is firmly committed to the $15 minimum wage. Uh, he's committed. He believes in the economics of it, which is why he put it forward right in the middle of the the depths of this economic crisis, uh, and made the case. The entire economic team made the case that actually this is a good time to raise the minimum wage because it would uh, deliver benefits directly to many of those essential workers who are out there doing the hard work of the country while working full time and still living in poverty. Uh, he believes that we have to find a path forward on it, and but we you know but we recognize that. We didn't get it done uh, in, the, in the rescue plan for the reasons that we all know. So now we have to find a way to get this done. So what we're doing on, on, on the, uh, the minimum wage is we're having conversations with congressional leadership, with Democrats um, in the middle center and left of the party, uh, and uh, with some Republicans outside of Washington, too, to figure out how can we do this? What's the right uh, path forward? We're going to have to do this together. It's, there's no easy path. There's no immediate path. Uh, if it were easy, it would already uh, get done. But we're committed to doing that, committed to find that, uh, that path forward, even as we uh, progress, uh, progress on this jobs plan. The last thing I would say about the minimum wage, and again, it gets, gets you out of Washington, is if you just looked at the debate over the last couple of months on the minimum wage, you would think that this was really quite a partisan issue. But across the country, you're seeing movement toward passing a $15 minimum wage. Florida. That really defies convention. Florida, right? Um, and what we're also seeing is that, you know, it doesn't cause, we, when, 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 the minimum, when the minimum wage goes to $15, we have a bunch of natural experiments around the country. Um, we're not seeing, you know, uh, we're, not, we're not seeing economic uh, cataclysm or anything like that. So I think that the, yeah. um, uh, the economics and the politics are on our side, but we got to find a path forward. Yeah. So we've been hearing a lot about high-speed rail. If you look at European countries, their high-speed rail systems are greener, cleaner, faster, more convenient. Would the American Jobs Plan lend itself to the possibility of high-speed rail here? 
Look, it's definitely an opportunity. There's the the largest investment in rail um, uh, in uh, in modern history embedded in this plan. Uh, we'd be in trouble if there wasn't, because uh, President Biden is a uh, is a railroads guy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, uh, but the the focus here is to try to identify where are going to be the highest value investments in rail in this country to actually get to really efficient, low carbon um, uh, ways of connecting people uh, to the places they need to go. Some of that, I think, will be um, uh, ex- uh, fixing existing corridors to increase the speed. Some of that may be building new uh, corridors that would that would you know look like a high speed rail. But you know, if you look at the Northeast Corridor, for example, the most trafficked uh, rail corridor, the there are some there are some common sense uh, investments we could make improving the corridor that could dramatically increase the speeds on existing. Uh, on existing rail lines. As the president says, you know, there's three turns. He knows exactly where they are because he's traveled it so much, but there's three turns in the the route between New York and DC that if you fix those three turns, you could double, you could, you could double the speed and cut in half the amount of time just on the existing rail. So yeah. there's a lot of opportunity. There's a, there was a lot of opportunity in rail to figure out how do we get to that efficient, fast, clean uh, rail corridor. And this is a plan that would, you know, that would, chart out a path to do that over a course of multiple years. Well, to piggyback off that, the cost for infrastructure in the U.S. is considerably higher than everywhere else in the world. I think the five most expensive subway lines in the world are all in New York. Um, American infrastructure could be between two and eight times more expensive than comparable projects in Europe. So aside from getting the money allocated once this bill is actually passed, how is the White House making sure that the money is being spent efficiently? Well, uh, some of that is through program design. Um, and so, for example, uh, you know, trying to use um, competitive funding uh, allocation so that you can create a sort of race to the top of people who've got better ideas for design and more efficient, uh, more efficient design. Um, some of it is, uh, is, is, frankly, though, looking at how we can use our procurement not only to squeeze out the last marginal dollar, but also to achieve the 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 best the, the the best economic benefit for America. So, for example, one of the things that there's a real opportunity to do now is to look at when we are doing procurements for infrastructure investments. Are we looking at the carbon content of the materials that are going to go into that project? And if we're going to make a big forward investment in concrete and steel, could we do it in a way that was purchasing lighter weight, lower carbon uh, materials? If you do that. Uh, that's also that you can do that in a way that's economically sensible. You can actually create demand for these lower carbon materials, and you can save a lot of money down the line because we're building more resilient, uh, lower carbon footprint uh, uh, right. transportation. So there's also the element of thinking about you know the uh, the the climate element to this as we think about what is going to be cost efficient. Yeah, totally. And and you know I'm glad, especially with with your background, that that we have you in this position, and that the whole idea of climate and and the environment is really weave throughout this entire uh, this entire package. So with that said, Brian, thanks so much for, for taking the time to talk. I really appreciate it. Thank you. It was fun. Thanks again to Brian Deese. That's it for this episode. Talk to you next week. You've been listening to No Lie with Brian Tyler Cohen, produced by Sam Graber, music by Wellesley, interviews captured and edited for YouTube and Facebook by Nicholas Nicotera, and recorded in Los Angeles, California. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on your preferred podcast app. Feel free to leave a five-star rating and a review. And check out BrianTylerCohen.com for links to all of my other channels. 